What's up, Dragonfly Nation? It's Chris Gilmore here from chrisoutdoors.ca and episode 34 of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast, where we dive deep into the world of tracking and awareness. Some people think of bushcraft as a hobby from the past, but to me, it's a lifestyle and the skills and knowledge are as valuable and as relevant as ever as we navigate this crazy world that we live in. A foundational and often underestimated part of bushcraft and survival is being able to read the landscape and interpret the story being told in nature's tracks, signs, and sounds. Whether that's interpreting the weather based on the clouds or the activity of the birds and insects to know a storm's coming in, or being able to look at a string of tracks or a sign and tell the elaborate story of what happened there. Or it could be reading the landscape to know where to find a certain plant or a tree species that you need for a project or even for survival. So if you're interested in building your confidence, growing your self-reliance, or deepening your knowledge of nature and your connection to the land, Canadian Bushcraft and I may have a great next step for you. It's a training that we call Reading Nature's Forgotten Language, and it's all about helping you deepen your ability to interpret nature's story. We're offering Dragonfly Nation 20% off this training, so if you want to check it out, you can go watch the trailer as well as a few clips from inside the course at www.naturesforgottenlanguage.com. Again, go visit www.naturesforgottenlanguage.com and if you want to join us, enter coupon code DRAGONFLY for 20% off. Being able to read nature's forgotten language will increase your confidence, skills, and it's straight up a ton of fun. To know the landscape is to open up a door To feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before We know that you will love this podcast so shut your mouth and listen to canadian bushcraft hello dragonfly nation this is the canadian bushcraft podcast with your host caleb musgrave this is episode 38 holy cow we're at 38 episodes and we are going to be talking about in this episode the indigenous food systems of the winter time from the anishinaabe perspective so we did a similar episode like this at the beginning of fall, and now we're coming upon the freezing times, the winter time. And so I want to do this episode at the beginning of December, our first episode of the month, and we're going to talk about the next few months from the perspective of the Anishinaabek people leading up to springtime, late winter, early spring is where we're kind of going to try and cap it off, okay? So we're going to talk about the months of December, January, February, and into March, maybe not all the way into April. But we're going to talk about these next three to four months uh, from the perspective of food. Because this is one of the hardest times of year to get food. And so this is the culmination of all the things that we gathered throughout the summer, the spring, and the fall. And now we're coming into the time when we're going to be able to gather some other foods, plan to get some other foods, and preferably survive the winter before Bacadegesis, the hunger moon, in mid to late February. So let's get into this. Now, where we left off last was Bashkakodin Gizis, which is uh, the, the freezing moon, when they, everything starts to build up frost and the edges of the ponds and the edges of the creeks and the edges of the swamps start to build a little thin crust of ice. Now we're getting into Menadol Gizos, or uh, the little spirit moon. This is the time of year, December, when uh, we start focusing more on our storytelling. And we start focusing more on life within the community uh, instead of external. So instead of focusing on 
going way out there looking for food and way out there looking for resources, we're staying more at home. And we're going to be staying together in our large communal homes, uh, family dwellings, our wigwam traditionally. And this could be an interesting time because in the summertime, the summer villages of the Anishinaabek could be quite large, especially at like large fishing camps, but also where there's large rice lakes in the fall, uh, late summer, early fall. Uh, you're going to see upwards of several hundred Anishinaabek in one area. Whereas in the wintertime, we would spread out so that we wouldn't burn up the resources too quickly. We would spread out throughout the forests. And as the freezing moon comes to an end, we would start building up and getting our gear ready to, for the freeze up. And so what that means is we're going to start making toboggans or dobogan. We're going to start making agama or agamuk, which is uh, snowshoes uh, or agaman. I'm going to have to remember my plural for that. I believe it's agamuk. But it could be Agamon. My buddy Keith is probably shaking his head right now and chuckling about me immediately pausing and hesitating with my words here. Uh, basically, our snowshoes. So we're going to start making snowshoes. We're going to start making uh, toboggans by the end of the freezing moon, getting ready for the time to move into our winter camps. And the winter camps depends on where you go. Uh, Nishnabek people in, the, in my territory, in my region, uh, we would move up further into the boreal forest. Uh, so... The closest to here you would start seeing that is the Muskokas and the Kawarthas, uh, the Kawartha Lakes region, uh, places like Buckhorn, Bob Cajun, uh, but also Bancroft Way up and towards Apsley Bancroft and a small town called Potash, which is named after my grandmother's uh, people, my grandmother's family. And on Potash Lake, uh, which is on the west side of the main highway going up into Bancroft and Potash, you see this little lake called Potash Lake. It's not that small. It's, it's smaller than Rice Lake and it's definitely smaller than many of the Kawartha Lakes, but it's not a tiny lake. It's not like a pond. And on the southwest end of that lake was where my grandmother's ancestors would have their winter camp. And there would be two or three families in that winter camp and each one of them would have their own trap line and they would work together to take care of each other and to survive the winter. So resources would be shared, but not explicitly like shared amongst hundreds, more like 10 to 20. And it would work better that way. And we would bring all of our resources with us. We would paddle up the rivers during, uh, during the uh, freezing moon. We would start getting up the rivers and start building our toboggan, start building our snowshoes, start building our lodges for the winter. We would have big, thick cattail mats. You would have three to five layers of cattail mats per rung of your lodge to make sure that it was heavily insulated. The R value of these sewn, not woven, sewn cattail mats was incredible absolutely amazing how effective they were insulating and they would also draft out the smoke very well every time you hear people talk about like anishinaabek or indigenous dwellings being overly smoky this is often from reports of people that didn't live amongst the indigenous people simply came across the dwellings and tried to live in them themselves when you listen to people like the jesuits and you listen to people like the courier de bois they would describe the dwellings, the, the lodges of Anishinaabek, Nehiwak, Innu, Mashkegawak as luxurious, as comfortable, as cozy, and, and spoken very highly of. And so we'd get into these lodges, we'd have fur, we would have cattail mats on the walls uh, to, on, to line the inside and the outside of the, of the walls. We would also have bark mats, like birch bark mats or, or shingles uh, put on the lower extremities of the lodge and up at the top to help shed the rain 
during the thawing days, but also to keep the water away from the dwelling in the thaw. So you'd have it at the foot of the lodge and at the head of the lodge, the top of the lodge and the bottom of the lodge. Uh, you'd have some bark mats or bark shingles and then cattail everywhere else to keep it nice and warm. And this was, again, a very comfortable dwelling. Uh, it would be lined with fur, but you'd also have bull bulrush mats on the floor. You'd have what's called sometimes sleeping pallets, which were very thickly woven bulrush mats that would be almost like a sleeping pad, uh, what we'd look at as a sleeping pad today. And they could be two or three layers thick to make a good, comfortable bed for everybody. Uh, spruce bough would then line the floor, and then you'd have your sleeping pallets and the furs on top of the spruce boughs. And the spruce boughs offer loft. They offer an amazing amount of loft, which means there's trapped airspace between you and the ground. And we've done this with forward-looking infrared uh, camera imagery uh, equipment. And we've actually tested it where we're inside of a lodge, and the barren ground right by the fire is like negative 12. And the spruce bough bedding right beside it is around negative 12 as well. But when you put your hand on the spruce bough bedding and pull it away, very little heat transfer would happen. Whereas when you put your hand on that barren ground, there was a lot of heat transfer, a lot of heat transfer. And so that's the real beauty of those spruce bough beds. Even in a survival shelter, spruce bough bed is much better than right on the ground any day of the week, no matter the time of year. So we'd have the spruce bow beds and then our sleeping pallets or sleeping pads made of bulrush on top and fur to keep us warm. And then later on, we traded uh, for wool. Wool blankets was, were very heavily sought after uh, during the fur trade era. And they would all be within these bark lodges, bark and cattail lodges, sometimes set up like an A-frame tent, sometimes set up in a conical form, kind of like a teepee or a lavu. And sometimes if we went out early enough and made the frame early enough, we would even make them in an arch frame like we would our summer lodges because all three work very well shedding the snow and supporting the frame from collapse. Both the arch, the A-frame, and the conical all worked really well in the winter. But personally, I would always kind of lean towards the A-frame or the conical for the wintertime just because it's easier to get poles to, to be straight, not, uh, not as easily to make them bend when it's really cold out to make a good frame. And the reason we would choose these uh, boreal kind of coniferous forest or conifer forest kind of ecosystems was not because it was going to be better firewood necessarily. Trust me, it's it's not. You're dealing with spruce and pine as your firewood. Well, you remember the firewood episode. If you want to check that out, it'll tell you a lot more about why we don't necessarily want to depend on firewood that is just coniferous. But... It was because the conifers, the, those boughs, those thick trees, those evergreen trees would help shed the snow and shed the wind and protect us from the oncoming storms, from the oncoming winter. The other reason is, frankly, that's where life is in the wintertime. If you go into a good, healthy boreal forest in the wintertime, there is activity everywhere. You have snowshoe hare, you have fisher martens, pine martens, you have red squirrel, lynx, uh, wolverine, white-tailed deer, moose further north, caribou and elk, further west and further northeast. Uh, you're going to have a lot of life in there because they're depending on those conifer trees the same way we are. And so for the wintertime, this is where you're going to find food and fur which are two of the most important things to last the winter is food and fur. Fur is going to keep you warm. 
it's going to keep you sheltered. It's going to keep you protected from those elements. And food is going to keep the calories burning in your gut so that you can stay warm even when the fire can't keep you warm. So we need to think about those two things more than just strictly firewood. Firewood is important, but so is the resources beyond firewood, the food and the fur. These are these fourth, uh, these, there's basically four or five things that I would say are critical to last a winter in the wilderness. Food, fur, firewood, water, and building material. If you have those five things, those five different resources, food, fur, firewood, building material, and water, you're going to be set. You're going to be pretty good, uh, well off. The water can come from the snow, from melting it, as we talked about in the winter camping episode. Uh, the pre uh, the Actually, we haven't talked about the winter camping episode yet. That's coming up very soon, I believe. But, uh, nope. Nope, I'm mistaken. That already came out. We already did the winter episode. Uh, the prepping for winter camping. Um, we talked about how important water is in there. you got snow all around you that can melt, but also lakes and rivers. And that's what I'm talking about with waters. You can travel on these. You can fish on these. All you have to do is cut a hole in the ice, and you can set traps for beaver, muskrat, otter. But also, you can be setting nets for fish. You can be catching fish with hook and line, which is not as efficient uh, as a net. But you can do both. You could be setting snares. You could be doing all these different things on there, and you could be traveling up and down. The rivers, when they're frozen, and the lakes, when they're frozen, opens up the country very, very well for you. And there's a lot of lakes and rivers and marshes up in the boreal forest. And then when you look at firewood, you need to have, obviously, a good amount of firewood around, especially when we're talking about pre-contact Anishinaabek. We're not going to have steel axes and saws to cut down all of our firewood. And yes, we have stone axes that are polished out of granite and basalt and other beautiful stones, or even napped out of flint or uh, chert or um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Jasper. These are great uh, stone materials to cut wood, but usually that is more often going to be put towards projects where you need to cut green wood. Seasoned hardwood just to burn. You're not going to waste your calories and waste your energy on that. In fact, you're just going to look for deadfall. You're going to go and find a lot of deadfall and burn up the deadfall over the next couple of months. Especially when you don't have a steel axe and a steel saw. That's just the reality of it. And so, when we're planning it out and looking at it all, thinking about how this system works. Firewood, water, we got those covered pretty much anywhere we go in the boreal forest. Building material. You're going to have your hardwood saplings. You're going to have things like red oak, your dogwood. Uh, you're going to have willow. You're going to have alder. You're going to have young birches. You're going to have some maples and oaks as well in the southern portions of the boreal forest. Uh, and then, you're, of course, you're going to have your pine, your cedar, your spruce, even hemlock, which are more southeasterly than right up in the true proper boreal forest, and balsam fir. All of these have building materials within them that we can use whether it's the boughs or the wood themselves or the resins themselves or the roots. And so we can use all those as well. When it comes down to the food, well, clearly all the mammals that we could ever think of are going to be up there, but we're also going to have rough grouse. We're going to have further north ptarmigan. We're going to have uh, some smaller birds that you can potentially trap or eat. But many of the birds, as we're going to be talking about it very soon, upcoming episode about winter birds with Nikki Satira, uh, there's not a lot of winter birds that are left behind. There's a few species, but not like the, the numbers that you see 
in the south. You're not going to have a ton of variety in birds. So the majority of the meat's going to come from mammals and fish. Those are the two main meat sources we're going to have. And so bringing food with us to go along with all this high protein, high fat, all of our carbohydrates like acorns, wild rice, corn, beans, squash, uh, but also all the wild foods that we gathered, all the mushrooms, all the berries that we processed and dried, all these amazing foods that we gathered throughout the spring, summer, and fall are culminating at this point. And in the little spirit moon, Manado Gizons of December, we celebrate. We, we hold a few feasts. We tell stories. We enjoy our life. And we start planning out the way of, of how it's going to be for the rest of the winter. We start planning out and plotting out everything. How we're going to make sure that everything's going to work well together. So that we are prepared to last the winter. And so that's what you're going to see in December. Traditionally, you're going to see a lot of storytelling. You're going to see a lot of feasts. You're going to see a lot of celebration. You're going to see a lot of connecting to our spirituality. A lot of it happening in December. And that's going to continue on through the solstice and into Manado Gizis. Or some people will say Gijem Manado Gizis or Gijem Manado Gizis. Or Gijem Gizis, depending on their dialect. And that's the Great Spirit Moment. And that's January. And that's where things are going to transition even further. So throughout all this time, through December into January, Anishinaabek people will be, as I said, feasting and celebrating. And once the snow starts to build up, they might start making tracks to play Snow Snake or Joshaman, uh, which is a very fun game. It's basically a distance throwing game without throwing in the way that you're used to. You're going to build a track. It's going to be a long track. Usually uh, it can be built up, you know, about half a meter tall, or it could be right on the frozen lake or on a river. And then you're going to drag a smooth log down the track, like 500 yards, sometimes even more. And you can have it twisting and turning and making this trail. And you can start building up little ramps and obstacles. And then everybody is going to make their Joshaman. And the Joshaman or snow snake is, depends on which nation you're from. Like the Haudenosaunee are going to use real, real long ones that are five to seven feet long. They also have what they call mud cats, which are only like three feet long, sometimes even shorter. Uh, Anishinaabek, we usually use ones that are about as long as wrist to wrist when spread out. Uh, when you stretch your arms out to, uh, to their fullest extent, from wrist to wrist, that's how far across. So like from your left wrist to your right wrist, if they're spread out in a cross form. Um, that's what how long our Joshimon usually are, which is just a little under your height. So the one I have currently is that I use a lot is made of white ash. Uh, not the best wood for making a Joshimon. Is what I had when I started making uh, making them. Uh, I'm currently working on some one out of some out of hickory and, and uh, black cherry, but uh, they're going to be about you know four and a half to six feet long as Nishnabic people go. And what you do is you try to carve it down as thin as you can, as narrow as you can, with a good tapered head, and you're going to polish this. You're going to polish this and sand it smooth with whatever materials you have. We would use horsetail and even a a piece of wet raw hide covered in sand as an abrasive. We would sh we would just shuck it down and sand, sand it down, sand it down, sand it down, and then polish it and polish it and burnish it with smooth deer antler and uh, uh, bones and everything we could to polish it smooth. And we would even insert um, 
Traditionally, there would be a carved socket that you would fit stones into that could be made of soapstone or pipe stone and set inside and filled in with gum to make sure that there was weight in the head so it would fly for quite a ways. And then you're going to polish it up. There was a mixtures of bear grease with beeswax and a bunch of other stuff that would be used. Nowadays, a lot of people use cross-country ski wax. Other people just give them really, really good varnishing. Uh, it depends on who it is that's called the slicker or the person that polishes the, uh, the, uh, the snakes. And then you're going to throw them down that pipe, down that trail that you made with that log. And the person's got the furthest distance, and it's going to come down to point systems. Some people go by a point system of, uh, of 7, others go by 11, others go by 13. Uh, I've heard even some groups where they say that it doesn't stop until 28 points. And if you go over... You can actually lose. <laughs> if you get like, let's say we're aiming for 11, you get 12 points. You can lose unless someone else gets higher than you or much lower. Uh, so your goal would be 11 and the person that's at 10, let's say they get 10 points and you get 13, uh, you get 12 points. You actually lose because they're still below 11, but closer. So it gets really complicated, but it's a beautiful, fun game to play. Very similar to Chunky in a lot of ways. Chunky is more of a summertime version of it. Uh, which has not been really popularized. Snow Snake has kept, been kept alive amongst the Haudenosaunee, down like Six Nations and over in Oneida, Wisconsin, and all over the place. Uh, but Anishinaabeg haven't really played it much, and Chunky has pretty much gone the way of the Dodo amongst a lot of indigenous nations. But it was one of those popular summertime games. But I digress. That has nothing to do with wintertime. Um, and so we'd play Snow Snake. We'd be betting different things. You know, gambling comes along with almost any sport. Uh, we'd be, you know, gambling on food. We'd be gambling on trap line sizes. We'd be gambling on gear, all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's just plain fun. It's just a good uh, good time and a good way to pass the time. And it's a good training method because what Snow Snake is teaching us is how to throw a spear low and along slick surfaces, which is one way Anishinaabeg used to hunt beaver. When we used to catch beaver out on the frozen water where there'd be sometimes uh, an opening, a clearing on the ice, and the beaver would climb out and sun themselves out in the open. We could actually stock up on them and have a spear shaped very similar to these snow snakes, and they would be thrown underhand, just like we would throw these snow snakes, at those beaver and kill them. There's the potential of killing them that way, or at least poleaxing them so they can't dive back through the hole, which is a horrible way to describe it, but a reality of it nonetheless. So... Snow Snake, though, it was a game and a way to entertain ourselves through the winter. It was also training us and making sure that we had our skills up to snuff for hunting beaver with spears along the ice edges. So that's a cool little piece of information in there to think about. It's like These games that we played weren't just games. They were training exercises. Almost anywhere around the world, the games you had there were there to keep you physically fit enough to do the tasks that those skills build upon your muscles. And it was no different amongst the Anishinaabeg people with Snow Snake or Joshaman. And so we'd be playing Joshaman. We'd be setting up everything we can throughout December and January. We'd be checking our trap lines. We'd be setting up deadfalls. We'd be setting up snare lines. We'd be setting up under-the-ice snares. We'd be setting up beaver hunting expeditions uh, all around our territory. However, all the while, we would leave the closest beaver dens alone. Throughout December... January and into most of February, we would leave the beaver dens near to the village or near to our winter camp alone. And there's a few reasons for this. Uh, first and foremost, because we want to have them, uh, we don't want to wipe out the beaver populations. 
That was not the Anishinaabeg way. We didn't want to wipe them out. We didn't want to eradicate the beaver. We depended on them through the winter. They're, like, you can get a lot of meat off of a beaver, a lot of meat, especially you cook it Sagabon style where you hang it from its tail or its hind, uh, hind legs and spin it by the fire, roasting it by the fire rotisserie style. But you're also going to get really good fur that's going to keep you warm and dry. You're going to get tools out of the beaver's teeth. You're going to get tools out of the beaver's ulna and other leg bone pieces. You're going to be getting all these components to use to keep you alive through the winter. And so we didn't want to wipe the animal out. We needed them. We depended on them. So we wanted to leave the ones nearby our village alone so that we would always have them nearby us. And that was kind of like one of the first teachings I got when I was learning how to trap for my elders was don't trap the animals close to your home. Trap far away. That way they're always close by to you. You're always going to have them around. And that comes up with the next part, the other crucial reason. Because if the trapping fails us throughout the uh, throughout the first two months of winter, we could be coming into Bakadegis, it's the hunger moon, which happens between mid to late February into, uh, into March. That's that Bakadegis, that hunger moon. And if you don't have food to last through that, you're not going to make it to the sugaring time. You're going to starve. And so we leave those nearby beaver dens as a food security maneuver or a, not maneuver, a protocol. So that if we come down to it, we have no other food available. We've run out of wild rice. We've run out of uh, monoman. We've run out of uh, acorns. We've run out of corn. We've run out of squash. We've run out of all the birds that we shot in the, in the fall and all of the fish we caught in the summer and in the fall. We run out of all of that and the trapping fails elsewhere. We can kill the beavers near us and that will last us for another one or two months. And so there's reasons for these things. All these protocols you hear from Anishinaabeg people, all these so-called rules that you hear are there for reasons that are very, very crucial for our survival. We didn't want to just survive the winter. We want to thrive through the winter. So we would always leave those resources closest to us in case of an emergency. We would go further out. One teacher I had said that you wouldn't trap within a one day's journey of your vill of your winter camp. You would go out at least a day's journey on snowshoes, and that's when you would begin trapping. And you would do missions. You would set up a trap line over here, and you would set up there and trap that area for a week or two. And then you would take down all your traps and bring everything back that you caught back to the, to, to the winter camp. And then go out in a different direction, another day's journey, and set up a trap line out that way and trap there for a week or two. And you would trap and trap and trap. And from that kind of focal point, and think of it like a, a central hub being your winter camp, and then going out in different cardinal directions and sub-cardinal directions. Like you'd go north for a week or two and then come back. You'd go south for a week or two and then come back. You'd go west for a week or two and then come back. You'd go east for a week or two and then come back. And that could be one or two months already. And then you would start going northwest, northeast, southeast, southwest. And then at that point, you should be coming into the sugaring moon, right? And so this system of going out in different directions, and it may not be directly northeast, southwest, yada, yada, yada. It could be a lot of different directions. You could be going in a lot of different ways to go and find those resources that you depend on. Now... I really want to touch on a lot on the, on the protein focus of the wintertime hunting and trapping and everything else. I, I don't want to 
take too much time on trapping though because i want to this uh coming january february actually bring in one of my fellow trappers and we're going to sit down and actually have a talk about you know the history of trapping the importance of trapping the value of trapping as people beyond what we usually talk about when it's like oh we're just going to get some money of it it's pizza money beer money yada 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 we're not going to be getting into that stuff so much we're going to get much more into how it benefits us as a people how it benefits us as an as an environment how it benefits us uh monetarily yes but not as much as you would think so we're gonna be saving a lot of the trapping talk for then what i do want to talk about though is some of the myths around like indigenous trapping and indigenous lifeways in the winter there's this like weird kind of almost like paradoxical mindset where people try to show how brilliant indigenous people were on living on the land at the same time overcomplicate things to the point that it's actually not ingenious how we did it. It, it's, it doesn't make any sense. One example being um, the winter wigwam image that gets shared on social media almost every December, happens almost every December, and it's just a sketch done by a very knowledgeable Anishinaabek man. I'm not, I'm not discrediting him by any chance, by any means. It's from the records that it came from. Uh, where we're looking at stuff from Verrazano's reports and journals. And Verrazano was a very questionable explorer and journalist, uh, or journaler. And a lot of his information didn't come from first-hand accounts. It came from third-hand accounts. Uh, travelers who did go into the interior and came back out and had talked to indigenous people how they lived would overcomplicate the story or embellish it and bring it back to him. And he would expand on that and embellish this and that and make a lot of hyperbole and also just a lot of lies. The the lodges that he was describing were overbuilt. They they would work, and that's I'm not going to discredit the person that did the that did the imagery because he actually did build that lodge, um, and more power to him because it worked. But it, it, it's when you look at when Anishinaabe people would come into their winter lodges and into their winter camps, it doesn't work. And that's one that I'm kind of become famous for or infamous for is like I, I i'm one of the guys that was starting to like argue that and point out that that doesn't make a lot of sense the other one that comes up is how we trapped uh one of the most common images and i've done it myself where i've set up imagery of an indigenous trap lines and i show a figure for deadfall it's not the truth weird right you didn't think i was going to go there right some of you probably did because you know that because you've taken the life on the trapline workshops with me or you've gone out winter camping with me where I have my trapline. And we didn't use figure four deadfalls. It's It was written down and documented again and again by John Anderson Cooper, who was a, a preacher, I believe, or a priest who was working in the northern communities amongst Algonquin and Dene people. So uh, Cree, uh, Algonquin, Algonquian, uh, Anishinaabek, in other words, uh, but also like the Ndene or the uh, the Klitsho, uh, the and different groups of the Athabascan and Algonquian language groups up in northern Canada. And throughout his journeys, he never he saw a lot of wooden traps being used. The Cree deadfall, uh, which is a peg with two sticks. You're also seeing the Samson Post deadfall being used almost by every nation across the northern hemisphere, which is a, a skewer stick and then a prop stick on top of it. Uh, all these different kinds of deadfalls being used, but not once did he ever see a figure four, what he referred to as a figure four deadfall trap or a trapper's widget 
not once. And he concluded that it must be a strictly Eurasian trap and it doesn't show up in the uh, trapping records in Canada or in North America to get at, at that matter. And so often when we're talking about indigenous peoples, we see how it's done by one person. We assume that's how indigenous peoples did it because that's where these people claim they learn that stuff. And it's just not the case. The, the closest I have seen to a North American figure for deadfall is the Paiute deadfall trap from the American Southwest, not from Northern Canada. So that's another part of my ranting that I want to get off my chest is you don't really see figure four deadfalls. You do see a lot of wooden traps, which I, I'll refer to them as wooden traps or Dostanon, um, Dostanog, uh, man, I'm not going to try to say that right now. <laughs> um, but basically you're going to see a lot of wooden traps. Some people call them deadfalls, but there's a lot more than just deadfalls in the wooden trap category. Uh, you have drowning hoops, which are a type of, it almost looks like a tomato cage, like those, those classic three hoops that are different sizes connected with four posts. Uh, but it was made out of wood. And then what they would do, uh, the Cree, I believe, did this. Uh, Nishnabek would have done it as well, though. They would actually break the dam open and shove the narrow end of the, of the drowning hoops into the water below, stake it down. And when the beaver came up to try and fix and repair their dam, they would slip and fall down into this, into this um, funnel of wood. And they would get trapped and pinned and their head would be underwater and submerged and they would drown. And it was a very effective trap, a very, very effective trap because the beaver, when they're around their trap, around their dams, often have sticks in their paws or in their mouths. And it's very difficult to get them to set off traps easily with all that brush in, their, in and around their hands and mouths. So it's easier to catch them when they're off balance up near the top and they're trying to patch it up. And you can use drowning sets of uh, long spring traps as modern day traps. We're talking pre-contact. It's difficult to get a deadfall to work in the water. Snares in this situation would get caught up in the brush. But a drowning hoop works really well. And that's another example of a wooden trap. So the two main types of traps you'd see amongst Anishinaabek people and our other boreal relatives would be things like wooden traps and snares. Wooden traps are going to include your drowning hoops, uh, potentially impalement traps, so I haven't come across too many in North America, uh, but a lot of deadfalls. And what a deadfall is, for those of you that are not acquainted with the term, a deadfall is a weighted object suspended by a platform or trigger mechanism that allows that weighted object to come down on top of the animal. So this could be a rock, this could be a block of frozen snow or ice, this could be a log or several logs. And the trigger mechanism is what we refer to when I'm talking about Samson post deadfall, Cree deadfall, figure four deadfall. Those are the trigger mechanisms that are going to uh, suspend or prop up that weight so that when it comes down on the animal's neck or head, it will kill them. And the rule of thumb is that we are to keep the weight of that deadfall trap four times the weight of our intended targets. So if we're aiming at a 25-pound beaver with a deadfall, we have to put up enough weight to be four times that, which is 100 pounds, suspended by just a couple of sticks or even a trigger mechanism with a rope. So we got to be very mindful how we set these things up. They were, they were genuinely an, an engineering feat, a feat of engineering, I think is the proper term I'm trying to say here. Either way, it was impressive and very effective. 
And so when we combine deadfalls with drowning hoops and snares and all these things, trapping beaver and muskrat and ermine and mink and martens, both pine marten and fisher marten, wolverine, wolf, coyote, fox, bobcat, lynx, bear even. This is suddenly doable without any steel. Now you include steel at the beginning of the fur trade era and things change even faster. Things get real serious real fast with traffic. But we'll save that for another episode. And along the lines of figuring out the protein of the winter, there's a lot of animals that can be trapped. Not all of them necessarily are edible. And that's where things get weird. They are all edible, but some have a compound of vitamin A. And that specific species are the mustelids or the weasels. So your fisher, your wolverine, your mink, your ermine, your pine marten, your lesser weasels. Uh, these weasel family members have a very high vitamin A content in their meat, especially in their organs like the liver. And so it is possible to ingest too much very, very easily. Uh, whether it's an otter or a mink, they're going to give you a lot of vitamin A in one dose. And if you're not careful, if this is a continued meal that you have frequently, you can, you can actually cause what's called hypervitaminosis A. Similar to what happens if you're eating polar bear liver or seal liver. It's at toxic levels, and it can get you very, very sick, all the way to liver and kidney damage. Now, one of the easiest ways to prevent that is to not eat too much of it. And so the Anishinaabe people, though we did eat Fisher and we did eat uh, uh, Pine Martin and we did eat Ermine, we didn't eat it at every meal, and we would often have it as a delicacy once in a while. And it would often be eaten with a lot of fresh food. Uh, things uh, specifically your uh, not necessarily fresh, but your vegetal uh, your vegetal form. So we would cook it with squash. We would cook it with beans. Uh, things are going to be in high carbohydrates and a good high fat content as well. That is how we would often end up cooking an otter or cooking a fisher if we had them. You would be cooking them with a lot of fat and a lot of squash and other berries and things like that that we preserved earlier in the spring, summer, and fall. And the reason for that is to cut back on how much vitamin A is being ingested and also to kind of dilute the amount. And we're going to eat it sparingly. Whereas something like beaver or muskrat could be eaten practically at every single meal. The main reason is these animals are herbivorous and they don't have a high vitamin A content. You're going to see that high vitamin A in uh, marine mammals and predators. So animals like wolf, coyote, fox, and of course all those mustelids I listed, you got to be very mindful about what contents are in their body that you're going to then ingest. And it goes beyond hypervitaminosis A or vitamin A poisoning. It can also include the fact that they are going to be uh, bioaccumulators. The predators at the top of their food chains are going to have a lot more toxins. They're going to have a lot more uh, heavy metals. They're going to have a lot more uh, dangerous compounds in their flesh than herbivores that were being eaten by those predators, right? So keep that in mind when we're talking about these, these ways of living on the land of the Anishinaabeg people in the wintertime. Yes, we were trapping a lot of these animals. Were we necessarily eating all of them? Not all the time. A lot of it was actually being fed to the dogs in the village. 
And that's what they would live off is the animals that we caught on the trap line that we couldn't eat or that we wouldn't eat. We would feed to them. And you see interesting like parables of that uh, or similar things happening like that up in northern communities. In some villages, they will catch a lot of seal and feed that to their dogs, whereas they'll eat the caribou. In other communities, they'll kill all the caribou and feed that to their dogs and eat the seal. And it all comes down to different preferences of the communities. Uh, a lot of so-called like, air quotes traditions come from a little single thing that happens in the community. Uh, an anecdote that kind of goes in line with that is a friend of mine who was working with, I believe it was the Inuit uh, up in Labrador. She was helping work on a food security project with them. And she noted, well, you guys have a lot of snowshoe hare and rabbit in the village even. Like they're everywhere. Why aren't you, why aren't you eating them? And one of the youth in the community was like, oh, we don't eat, we don't eat rabbit here. Well, why not? Well, they're, they're not good. Well, why not? I don't know. My mother would know, though. So they went to her, to her to the girl's mother. And the mother said, uh, I, I don't know. We just don't eat them. We, we don't eat rabbit. But my mother knew. She, she was around when those decisions were made. And she knows those teachings. So they went to the grandmother. And the grandmother said, back in the early 50s, we had a caribou. Uh, the caribou didn't come through. And we didn't have caribou for three years straight. And so we lived off snowshoe hair for three years straight. And so when the caribou came back, we never wanted to see a snowshoe hare again on our plate. <laughs> and that's just all where it came from. It's just simply the community decided we're not eating rabbit ever again unless we have to. And so these traditions can kind of come from places like that, but they can also come from practical applications where we, we learn certain protocols around kind of like what I was talking about with the beaver trapping near the village or near the winter camps. You don't do that. You, you trap beyond at least a day's journey away. And there's protocols around that for reasons. Sometimes those reasons are very serious about food security and survival through the winter. And other times it could be simply, oh, we just don't do that because my we, we, we got fed up with tasting it. We don't like the taste of it anymore. And it can be simple as that. So when we're looking at a lot of these like traditional foods of the wintertime, you're going to see a lot of survival fare mentioned. You're going to see people talk about bark how we would live off bark. And there's even the Adirondack Mountains down in New York State were uh, given their name from the Ganyageha language, from the Mohawk language, uh, describing certain Algonquian groups, and Anishinaabek people. Uh, the Adirondack Mountains, they come from a Ganyageha word. Uh, to my Ganyageha friends who are listening in, I apologize. I do not speak your language. I cannot pronounce things very well. I got it written out in front of me uh, phonetically, so if I butcher this, I do sincerely apologize. Haderonda, Haderonda, which is where they claim, they believe Adirondack got his words. Uh, sometimes also spelled by the British as Rontax. Uh, you'd also see Adirondacks, uh, Rondax, uh, Atcox, a bunch of different ways of saying it. Uh, phonetic spelling of the word from the Europeans. And the belief behind that is it's a derogatory term for certain Algonquin groups who didn't practice agriculture in that region and they were sometimes having to depend on tree bark for the winter time and that is actually not just people say like oh it's because they didn't practice agriculture and it's not like people practiced agriculture we farmed corn beans squash <coughs> pardon me a bunch of different foods but i wouldn't turn down bark bread either in the winter time we can peel birch by pouring hot water or exposing it to heat 
We can peel birch bark off, and we're going to use that birch bark to make beautiful crafts because come winter, the phloem, the inner bark, bonds to the outer bark. And we can peel that off and trick the bark into thinking it's, it's spring enough to be able to peel it off, and it leaves a little bit of the phloem behind on the inside of the outer bark. And then with warm water, we can begin to etch that, and we can design and decorate our baskets, our canoes, our cradle boards with these etched birch bark pieces. But that leaves the inner bark exposed to the elements. And a tree can survive from that, but usually we would cut the tree down to get the bark in the winter to make it easier to peel. And so taking even a flake knife or a beaver tooth or a piece of uh, moose antler, we can break off large chunks of that inner bark. And what we would do is parboil it just once, bring it to a boil once, uh, pour that off, and that's going to help get rid of a lot of the astringent kind of uh, bitter aftertaste that are in the bark. And then we would dry that over the fire, high up above the fire, and grind that. And we would add that as a, as a food, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Filler. It's going to be high in carbohydrates, it's going to be high in starches. It's going to be very, very nutritious in that, uh, in that line. But mainly what it's going to do is it's going to stretch out our other flowers, whether that's going to be lamb's quarter seed or goosefoot, or if that's going to be cornmeal, or is that going to be acorn flour, or is that going to be wild rice flour, what have you. We're going to add in those barks to those inner barks of the birch and pine uh, was often used as well to help extend the flower throughout the winter. And so we weren't just living off meat in the winter. We were bringing all the food that we gathered back in the spring, summer, and fall, and then we're even depending on the trees come winter time to provide us even more carbohydrates to keep us fed and fat and happy and make sure that we're going to be burning good calories throughout that cold part of the year. Very, very complicated if you're not looking at it from a perspective of the indigenous eye. Everything around us is there to take care of us. And if certain things are available in the wintertime, we're going to use them. We're going to exploit those resources as quickly as possible. And so we've got our snowshoes being made, we've got our toboggans being built, we have our winter lodge set up, we've begun the trap lines, we're trapping beaver, we're trapping in the forest for uh, the Fisher family, or the, sorry, the Martin family and other weasels, we're trapping uh, in the forest for wolf and coyote, we're trapping for bobcat, lynx, uh, we're trapping for all those animals, we're also setting snares for grouse. Uh, rough grouse snares would basically be long V-shaped fences made out of tamarack branches with the buds and the, the little tiny little bits of needle that are left in the early winter. Uh, we're going to leave that fence up in the snow and the grouse will come along and eat those buds and they'll eat those needles. And they're going to keep going along pecking away and then they're going to see right at the, at the uh, end of the V where it becomes a corner, they're going to see a pile of buds or a pile of berries. And they're going to start walking towards that and there's going to be tiny little snares, about two or three of them set up in sequence along the, the, the uh, mouth of that opening to the corner. And as the grouse walk in, they get their neck into the snare. When they try to back up, the snare tightens around their stiff neck feathers. And they try to fly away and it often breaks their neck or just at least pins them down. But another kind of snare was used for the spruce grouse. And this is known often as simply as spruce grouse snare. And what it was, was a pole with an uh, extension of uh, spruce root or a piece of rawhide or a piece of lacing made into a noose. And what would happen is we'd flush the spruce grouse into the trees and they'd trust their camouflage so well 
that they would just perch themselves up in the tree looking down at us laughing, right? Well, you pick up this pole with the noose, and you slowly and carefully reach up and drape the noose over the grouse's neck. And it's only when that snare touches their neck that they react and they try to take off and fly away, and they often break their neck as they fly. And if not, a quick whip of the stick and the neck is broken. And then the hunter or huntress, it was a very common trick that I've seen amongst uh, Innu as well as Nihilwak and Mashkegoak women was this technique, very common technique used by women around the camp. Uh, When the men were out moose hunting, the women were catching quite a lot of grouse that way. Very, very cool technique I've seen over many times in the North Country. And it's just, just simply called a spruce grouse snare whereas a uh, rough grouse snare is actually a fenced-in, set-up trap. And as we transfer into January, we're going to see these skills being repeated again and again. All the while, we're going to be getting things ready. People are going to be looking for basswoods or poplars of the right size to start cutting down and carving with their mokotagan and their wagakwa, their, their crooked knife and their axe. They're going to start carving out uh, sugaring troughs. They're going to start carving sugaring paddles. And they're start get, going to start getting materials ready for the sugar bush, which will be the next big event at the end of winter. So come January, February, they're going to start perfecting those tools, and making beautiful pieces of art. And this is the time of year that we're hearing stories being told around the fire. And we're seeing crafts being made. Women are doing beadwork. Men are doing quill work. People are carving. People are doing antler work. They're doing all exquisite pieces of craft, uh, craftsmen and craftspersonship. Uh, or ship absolutely amazing skills being shared throughout the winter to buy the time you're you're going to basically be snowed in for quite a bit of the winter and you're going to be going out to check your traps and then coming back with those supplies uh, just to supplement the di- the diet and that's really all it was for just to help enforce more warmth firewood will constantly be needed water will constantly be, uh, be needed and new building materials will constantly be needed And all the while, you'll see the community in that winter camp growing and being very strong and tight-knit, sometimes all under one roof. Uh, And so you'd have like one or two, maybe three families under in one large lodge, one wigwam. And you would have everything from childbirth happening in there to child conception happening in there. And everything from storytelling with the grandparents all the way to gambling games with the uncles and the aunties and so many different things happening in there that were just pleasant and beautiful and just part of the the, the environment it was. And you can still see that today in a lot of indigenous communities. Even though we now have large houses that we live in our in, on our own, we all live separately and many of us have automated vehicles and we have permanent heating like uh, propane or even even if we do have wood stoves they're modern wood stoves and wood burning furnaces that might be outdoors or external uh, we may have electrical baseboard heaters we may have all the things and that modern Canadians and other modern people have but you'll see this kind of community happen when we're on the land together where we get together and we just work together in a beautiful way there's a great documentary from the, uh, I believe it was the late 50s or early 60s, could have been even the 70s, uh, called Cree Hunters of the Mistassini, or Mistassini. Uh It's on the National Film Board of Canada's website. You can find it, amazing documentary where you see uh, three Cree families basically 
build a shack, build a lodge, and move in and live there for the winter and survive the winter together. They're trapping, they're hunting, they're fishing, uh, everything, and their and their traditions carrying on in there, building snow shovels, building everything that they need to, to live. It's a phenomenal documentary. Uh, and things haven't changed much in the North Country. People still will go out and do that. It's not as common as it was 50 years ago, but it's still happening. And it's actually starting to grow again with people trying to re-indigenize or decolonize these uh, throughout the summer times you'll see culture camps happening for me though the best culture camp is the winter camps when we're setting trap line we're setting fishing nets we're out on the land in the cold and you're you're left with just community all the time and you start to work together a lot better the this modern day like often you'll see even amongst our own people, backbiting and kind of a crab bucket or lateral violence kind of thing happen. And that starts to bleed away. That starts to fade away the longer they're out on the land together. The stronger and tighter knit that community gets, the less that happens. And I think it can be beneficial for not just Indigenous people, but for everybody to go out and spend like long periods of time on that land in the winter. It's absolutely amazing, absolutely beautiful. But anyways, that's getting on a whole other rant about why wildness and everything else are so important. But still important to talk about here, but that's not really the main topic. Let's get back into the food resources and the food systems of the Anishinaabek in the winter. So we're collecting bark for baskets and taking the inner bark to make into food. We're trapping animals for fur and for the protein that they can give, but also bait for other animals. The beautiful thing about trapping, and I'm going to keep coming back to trapping because that's really one of the main focal points of the wintertime, is you can get certain resources that you just can't get anywhere else. You look at wild dog fur, like wolf, coyote, even red fox, where you look at some of the mustelids like wolverine and fisher and otter, frost cannot be held by their hair uh, follicles. You won't see hair uh, building up frost on them which means you don't get frostbite from it. It means it, it doesn't freeze to your skin. It means it doesn't become less insulative when it's going to get uh, wet and cold. It's going to get warm again. It's going to dry off. And you just can't get that with petroleum-based synthetic fur. And you can't get that even with wool. You can't get that kind of reaction. It's incredible. It's, it's almost magical. And it makes sense. You're dealing with animals that live in freezing climates. Their hair kind of has to remain frost-free. And so lining, making mittens out of beaver fur and uh, fisher and mink fur uh, lining around the hoods and cuffs of your coats and making muskrat fur and wolf fur hats. All these beautiful resources, like truly beautiful resources from those animals that we're also consuming and feeding our dogs. Like there's so much that comes out of an animal. We had that episode last weekend where I talked about all the uses of an animal. Uh, you got the carcass, now what kind of thing. And it goes beyond. It goes well beyond what we talked about there and even what I'm talking about here. We have all these resources. And we're going to be setting nets. Come January and when those lakes really freeze up and firm up and they're safe to walk on, we're going to be taking ice chisels, traditionally made out of a moose's femur. That because again it doesn't build up frost it doesn't build up ice so it clears itself as we're cutting the hole and we're going to chop our hole through and we're going to build a jig and sometimes what would happen is they would find uh where there's pressure cracks or fissures 
in the ice, and they would just open those up a little bit more with ice chisels and just sink the net down in that fissure through that pressure crack. And they would set the net, and it could be set for a day or it could be set for six days. And depends on how long the net is, depends on what the resources are, or what the, uh, the, the population of the fish are in that lake, the temperatures, all that kind of stuff. But we're also going to start building uh, fishing spears that are going to be made for casting under the ice. Traditionally, they were made out of cedar. Sometimes white ash as well, but cedar is what I've always seen them as. And a channel would be cut just above where the prongs would be attached. And that channel, hollowed out, would be filled with stone. We would fill it with stones to give it weight down near where the spearhead is. And then when we lash the prongs on, it would cover over that channel so it would be sealed shut. And we would wrap that with uh, plant fiber twine, so dogbane, basswood, etc. And then soak it with spruce pitch glue, spruce gum glue, so that it wouldn't allow the water to penetrate. And we would cut a hole in the ice and we would make a shadow tent out of moose hides and boughs and poles and make this good little tent and we would stay in there we would have jigs and these jigs would be made out of basswood and we would put a stone set in the bottom later on they would pour molten lead in there uh you'd carve these jigs to look like fish it could be a, a baby walleye a perch uh it could look like a big old like uh baby bass like a small fish no longer than your hand is and uh pieces of copper would be used to make fins sometimes it would be rawhide or leather uh, I've seen a lot of different things used, and they would paint them and decorate them. And then at the balance point, they would drill a hole, set that through with a very fine string made of dogbane, and bring that up to a stick, and they would just jig with that and jig with that and attract muscalunge, walleye, pike, these large predatory fish that are high-fat fish, these white-fleshed fish, would come up. And then that spear driven through the ice hole with enough force to break the buoyancy, to, to ignore the buoyancy of the, of the cedar wood, and those rocks inside would help give it mass to drive through that ice hole and hit the fish and then drag it back almost like a harpoon and pull that fish back out of the hole. And boom, there you got fish. Add the, the nets and you're set pretty well for fish. And we would also later make hooks. Um, there's even documented copper fish hooks in uh, the Toronto area from about 3,500 years ago to 2,000 years ago to even a few hundred years ago. We see copper fish hooks coming into the into the mix, um, and copper fish hooks look very similar to modern fish hooks, except that it wasn't an eyelet; it was uh, basically a groove notched around the copper that the string would be tied onto. And so, fishing was a huge part of that. It was fresh meat that was high in fat, and again, it could be also fed to the dogs. You'd also make broth out of it, and the skins could be turned into bait the skins can be turned into depending on what the species is leather and all these other crafts come out of that and it just continues on and on like concentric rings in a pond it, it, it just expands and expands and expands and you see more and more of the Anishinaabeg life ways the more we touch on these subjects how it's all interconnected yeah we're here to talk about food but we've talked about lodges we've talked about snow snake we've talked about uh we've talked about uh, snowshoes, we've talked about toboggans, we've talked about all these things, all these different directions, all these little like rings spreading out in the pond as one pebble falls in, more little reactions and actions happen all around. It's, it's really beautiful how it is all completely holistically interconnected. 
I think that's why I wanted to talk about this every uh, every season. We want to do this episode, uh, whether it's for the fall or down to the winter one. The spring one will be coming up next, and of course, summer after that. And then we'll probably finish the series after that, or we might revisit them. We might revisit these episodes later on in the next season. But anyways, with this one, we're we're going through January, dealing with all these other aspects, and as long as we keep bringing in enough food and we have enough stored to last for a couple more months, we should be good. And we're preparing all of our stuff for the future endeavors. As we enter uh, February, we start coming into what's called, in some areas, like in different uh, Nishinaabek territories, you're going to have different names for the months. In uh, some areas, we hear Makwagizas for February because that's when the bears start to wake up is at the end of February and they start moving around. It's their first time they really move around throughout the winter. Uh, they'll get up and try to eat when there's a, that bit of a thaw in February. Along that line, so we also have Bakadegis, it's the hunger moon. There's also other names I've heard all over the place for it. Um, Bakadegis, this is where things get scary. It's the hunger moon. And so this is when if you don't have enough food saved up and you haven't done your due diligence, or it's just not been a very productive year, you could go hungry very, very quickly. And this is where we hear stories of cannibal monsters. And this is where we hear the spookier stories that keep us all within our protocols as Anishinaabe people so that we don't fail and we don't make mistakes and we don't cause more, uh, more failures than successes. We want to make sure that our, that our winter camp survives and thrives. And so we will do everything in our power. We'll make sure that we're communing with those spirits, communing with those animals in a good way, that we're doing things in a good way, and our actions and our heart and our minds are all in, uh, are all one, in a sense, to make sure that it's all done properly, and so that we don't get punished, in a sense, for lack of a better term, for doing the wrong deeds. And so that's where we're really going to end it for now. Uh, this episode we're going to end here because I don't want to take too much up of the end of uh, winter because that's also springtime. kind of transitions real fast in our culture. You have like winter and then Ziguan, which is like that early spring, late winter where you have like the sap starts to flow. And that's really our new year, right? That's like the Anishinaabe new year. And so we'll be starting that one in March. We'll probably do the uh, next episode on the Indigenous Food Systems C- series in March. But for now, I just want to start us off with our December episodes. This is going to be a real fun month. We've got a bunch of stuff coming up. And of course, it it being the holidays coming up for a lot of different cultures, uh, we're going to have a few different things going on, a few different talks happening. So look forward to those coming up very, very soon. Thank you all of you for tuning in. I want to thank our patrons as well. People like uh, Martin Heidinga, Paul McCarney. I want to thank Melinda Rydell, I want to thank uh, I want to thank Nicole Davies. I want to thank everybody who supports us on Patreon. And if you want to be a patron supporter, check out, go over to Patreon and look up Canadian Bushcraft. You'll find us there. Our link will also be in the description of this episode, and you can also find it on our Facebook page and on our Instagram page. You can find our Patreon and become a supporter there, and you get to help decide on what episodes we talk about each month. Uh, this coming month's episode that was chosen by the patrons is all about winter survival stories or we have stories that are spanning several centuries of North America and people being stranded and sometimes having to resort to horrible measures to survive. 
uh, all coming up. And we got a bunch of special guests for that episode telling their stories uh, that they did their own due diligence and research on. It's a really cool project we've been working on since early November. Uh, really, really cool to work on with all of them. Uh, and that'll be coming up around, uh, I believe, Christmas Eve. I believe we're going to be dropping that. That's a real cheerful one to talk about on Christmas Eve. But regardless, we're going to be dropping it around that time. I'm not sure if we're going to be dropping it that day or not. Um, we may actually drop it on New Year's Eve. Uh, maybe a better night for us to drop that one episode. But we'll see. We'll see where it drops. Uh, we have a couple more episodes coming out. We're going to be talking about, uh, Ryan and I are going to be talking to you about a very important thing, which is safety when traveling during the holidays. So like what to have in your vehicle, what to have on your person, what to know, what to leave behind, who to inform, all that kind of stuff will be coming up very soon. I think it'll be actually our next episode next weekend. So hopefully you look forward to that. I'm looking forward to it myself. I hope you're all doing very well and I hope you all take care. Thank you once again for tuning in to the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast.